Hello and welcome to the CWS Science Podcast. of our CWS podcasts and we'll be looking at controlled assessment. This time we'll be looking at planning and collecting primary data. Now this is quite a big section and it's going to be probably the busiest time that you're going to have. This is when we really get hands-on into the equipment but before we can get hands-on we need to plan. Now the first thing to point out about this section is it's carried out under what we call medium control. So, what does medium control mean? It means, one, the teacher can't help you. Two, you can't take any of the work away from the classroom. And three, you can work in small groups. So, to do this planning and carrying out this practical, you'll be working in groups of two to three students, collaboratively to work together. So, it's actually made up of several sections. The first section is planning. The second section is collecting data. Also, there is a section called managing risk. That's actually a very important section. First section then, planning. So, we need to actually plan what we're going to do. Now, the first part of planning is to create something called the hypothesis. Now, if you're doing GCSE science, the hypothesis is provided for you. So that's the only difference between the controlled assessments. If you're doing GCSE science, you don't have to worry about this bit because you're given the hypothesis. For GCSE additional science and for biology, chemistry and physics, you have to make a hypothesis. A hypothesis is a statement of what you believe will be the relationship between your variables. So what do you think is going to happen? If we go back to our idea of dropping our tennis ball, then you could say my hypothesis is that as we increase the distance the tennis ball is dropped from, then the time taken for the tennis ball to reach the ground will increase. To get the highest marks, you also then need to include a scientific reason for your hypothesis. What scientific basis are you using for that hypothesis. Now the hypothesis is really important because you'll have to refer back to that right at the end in the last section to say whether your conclusion has met your hypothesis, whether you have actually proved or disproved your hypothesis. Now every single science practical always has the same basic planning. Planning always works like this. What are you going to change? We call this the independent variable, the thing that you are changing in the experiment. What are you going to measure? This is called the dependent variable. And finally, what other things are you going to control? This is called the controlled variables. And you might be familiar with the idea of controlled variables because that's where the idea of keeping things a fair test comes from. So when you're laying out your work, it's really important that you clearly identify what your three variables are, what is your independent variable, what is your dependent variable, and what will be your controlled variables, because there might be more than one thing you're controlling. Here's the example. Okay, so we're talking about falling objects, and we're going to take a tennis ball. 
and we're going to drop that tennis ball. So the thing we've decided to change is we're going to change the height the tennis ball is dropped from. So that becomes our independent variable. We're going to measure the time taken for it to fall to the ground. That's called our dependent variable. And we're going to keep some things constant. So some things very obvious to keep constant here are the ball. The ball is always a tennis ball. It's always the same size. It's always the same mass. Some controlled variables be irrelevant. It wouldn't matter if the tennis ball was purple or yellow. So that is irrelevant. But the other things do matter. So it really is important that the number one thing you do before even starting to think what equipment you're going to use is what are you going to change, what are you going to measure, and what are you going to keep the same. Next then, we need to select what equipment we're going to use. Now, in the lab will be a selection of equipment for you to look at, and in this first section, just look and decide and make a judgment about what would be the best pieces of equipment to use. Now, let's introduce this very important word now called precision. Precision is a word that means how many decimal places an object measures to. Generally, things that measure smaller amounts are more precise. So for instance, if I'm using a 10 milliliter measuring cylinder, it's going to be more precise than using a 100 milliliter measuring cylinder. So that makes it a much better instrument to use. If I'm going to be measuring the time taken for our tennis ball to fall to the ground, I'm going to use a stopwatch, which measures to two decimal places. I'm not going to use the clock in the room, which is very hard to use. Again, using a piece of apparatus to make sure it has the correct precision. So that's the word precision, and it's very important that when we decide what equipment we're going to use, we think about using the most precise piece of equipment available. If you were measuring something in the scale of millimetres, you wouldn't use a metre rule. So we also need to make a list of all of the equipment we're going to use, and for each piece of equipment, why are we using that piece of equipment? So it could be a basic use, or it could be... Uh, saying why that piece of apparatus would be the most appropriate, whether it's the most precise. Depending on the practical, this could be quite a long list or it could be quite a short list. For instance, in our tennis ball practical, the equipment is one tennis ball and one stopwatch that measures to two decimal places and one meter rule to make sure that we always drop it from the same distance. So, not too complicated there. And then we would write down a justification for each one. We're using a stopwatch at two decimal places to measure the time taken for it to hit the floor. We're using a meter rule to make sure we drop it from the same height. And we're using the tennis ball as the object that we're dropping. So nice, simple explanation. Now we also need to plan on how much data we are going to collect. Now the best thing to do is collect at least five different values of your independent variable. So for instance, to go back to the dropping the tennis ball, we could drop the tennis ball from five different heights, usually spaced out the same. So dropping it from 60 centimetres, 70, 80, 90 and 100 centimetres would be a good range of our independent variable. We then also need to plan on repeating the experiment. We should repeat the experiment at least once, and ideally if time allows, twice.
to make sure that the results we're getting are reliable. The word reliable just means that we are able to repeat the experiment and get roughly the same values. Now once you've got all of your plan together and you've written down your variables, you've written down the list of your apparatus, you should also write down a step-by-step -step method. And I always go for the cookery approach, that is, you write down step one, do the first step. So for instance, step one, take two eggs. Step two, take 50 grams of flour, etc. Write them down step by step, as if you were trying to explain to someone very simply how to do the practical that you're doing. And this is where another special term comes in, the term accuracy. To carry out a method accurately, you need to make sure it's explained well. So, to carry out the experiment with the tennis ball accurately, you might write down that we will start the stopwatch when we have a countdown. So one member of the group would go three, two, one, drop, and then the person would press the stopwatch. That way we ensure that the experiment is carried out the same each time, and that's where the word accuracy comes from. For a method to be accurate, it can be carried out the same each time. Now once you've written that out, you need to make a risk assessment. Now the risk assessment is a very important part. It's worth six marks, and it's actually a very easy six marks to get. In all risk assessments, whether it's doing a practical or whether it's using a high-rise crane, we always follow the same three parts. The first part of the risk assessment is to identify what is the risk. Okay, so what object, what thing that you are doing is going to cause a risk. So for instance, in our dropping objects, if we were dropping a heavy object, like a 500 gram mass, then our hazard okay, would be the object we're dropping. The second part to any risk assessment is how you're going to avoid the danger. So for instance, in the case of dropping a mass, we would put a soft cushion and we would make sure that people are well out of the way when we drop the mass. And then third is what happens if it goes wrong. What would happen if your risk avoidance wasn't successful and someone put their foot under the mass and it dropped on it? Then you can write simply, in many cases, ask the teacher, seek first aid. So the risk assessment is very simple, very easy. You need to put it under the three parts. But remember, as a teacher, we can't let you do a practical unless we can show you can do it safely. So doing the risk assessment is very important. Okay, so now we're ready to go. We have planned our experiment, we've thought about the risk, and now we're actually going to carry it out. And the first thing we're going to do is just conduct the experiment once. It's got a trial. So just conduct the experiment and see if it works. If it does work, make sure you write it down. I carried out a trial for the experiment and found that it worked perfectly. If you find, though, there's something that you need to tweak to change, that's fine. Don't go back and change your initial method. Just write a paragraph saying how you've changed it. What have you changed? What do you need to change about the experiment? So it may be that, for instance, in dropping our tennis ball, that we need to increase the number of different heights it's, it's dropped from because we've found that it's too hard to see the difference between the different heights. Now, once you know the experiment's working perfectly, you can go ahead and start collecting all your data. 
Now the really important thing here is to collect the data, you need something to collect in, you need a table. Now all tables should follow the same format. Now we're not allowed to tell you how to lay out your table, but we can tell you this. You always put the independent variable in the first column. A column is the one that goes vertically. So, for instance, in the case of dropping our tennis ball, the independent variable is the height it's dropped from. So that goes into the first column. In the second, third and fourth columns goes our repeats of our data. So for instance, our first time we repeat it, the second time we repeat it, the third time we repeat it. Now the next thing is also the column headings need to be correct. So our first heading would be the height of which the ball is dropped from, in brackets, centimetres, close brackets. We don't need to put centimetres after each value because we've put it on the table heading. For the other values it would be the time taken for the for the tennis ball to hit the ground in seconds. Again we wouldn't need to write seconds down for each part of the table. The other important thing is we need to make sure that all of the values in the table are to the correct number of decimal places. If we're using a meter rule that measures to the closest millimeter or centimeter for instance then we need to write down the exact measurement. So for instance 60.0 centimeters. For the time taken, if the stopwatch measures to two decimal places, we need to make sure we write down 4.27 seconds. It's very important to make sure everything's the same accuracy. Even if by some fluke chance you end up with a value that is, say, 3.00, you would not just write down 3, you would still write down 3.00. It's very important for you to show that you are collecting the data to the correct level of precision. So that brings us to the end of going through what you'll need to do to conduct the perfect experiment. It's really important to realize as well you are against the clock on this, you only have two hours. We can't extend the amount of time we give you to carry out the practical. So let's actually go through the mark scheme and what the mark scheme says. There are three sections for this, each with six marks. The first mark part is planning. Okay. So for the E grade, marks 1 to 2 for planning. Outline and plan includes equipment and techniques to be used. Plan provides a fair test. This person has shown no evidence of modifications for the plan to in the data collection phase. For 3 to 4 marks, that's the C grade. The plan gives sufficient detail for experiment to be repeated, including choices of equipment and techniques range, a number of data points for the independent variable, a number of replicates, other variables to be controlled, with the aim of collecting quality data. Some consideration is given to how errors will be minimized, and there's no evidence of modifications of plan during the data collection phase. For the top grade, A, what you should be showing is this. You have a comprehensive plan showing scientific understanding and making of appropriate choices of equipment, including the resolution and techniques, range and number of data points for the independent variable, number of replicates, control of other variables with the aim of collecting accurate data. Detailed consideration given to how errors will be minimized, variables which cannot be controlled. Where appropriate, reasoned modifications are made to the plan as your evidence is collected. And like in all other parts of the control assessment, 
spelling, punctuation and grammar are important for this. For collecting primary data, again for the E grade, results recorded clearly but not in an appropriate format. In other words, your table is a bit scruffy. For the C grade, three to four marks, results tabulated to include all data expected, although not in the most appropriate format. Headings given, but units not always correct. So in other words, your table looks kind of neat, but you haven't laid it out completely correctly with the correct units in the headings. But it should be easy for everyone to get five to six marks the A grade. Results tabulated clearly and logically, including use of correct headings and units, all data expected, recorded to appropriate levels of precision. And finally then, for the managing risk, nice and simple this one, should be very easy for everyone to get six marks. For the E grade, one to two marks, you've shown a limited understanding of the risks and procedures with only standard laboratory safety features mentioned. Some teacher intervention was required to ensure your safety. So if the teacher gets involved or has to make any comment, you automatically will get an E grade. For the C grade, for three to four marks, some risks in procedures analyzed and specific responses suggested to reduce the risk. Risks managed successfully with no significant incidents or accidents and no requirement for teacher intervention. And for the A grade, five to six marks, all significant risks in the plan evaluated, reasoned judgments made to reduce the risks by use of appropriate and specific responses. When it says specific responses, for instance, you would say wear goggles to avoid getting acid in your eyes, where for a C grade, you might just write down wear goggles. So that's the end of this podcast. And until next time, follow us on our Twitter feed at CWS Science.